0: And Saints! We're in our last four chapters of the book of Jeremiah. We certainly are having an amazing journey, aren't we? Yes. Tonight we'll be returning to our traditional format. Tonight is Jeremiah 49, singular chapter. This will allow us to make historical application eschatological reference and the all-too-important personal application yeah. Yeah. within the material. We're going to read the chapter all the way through, and then we'll return to the text so that we can expound upon its content. As Miss Jennifer prepares herself to read, we want to remind you of a few things that you have already learned. They're integral to you understanding what's happening tonight. The God of Israel is the God over every nation. Babylon represents what is perhaps the first global power in Genesis 11 and the last (laughs) global power in Revelation 17. There it's referred to as Mystery Babylon. Babylon's most prominent king within the biblical account is King Nebuchadnezzar. And we're at a place in Jeremiah's prophetic book where Nebuchadnezzar has destroyed the city of Jerusalem. However, in the years that followed that event, Daniel records the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. The tyrant king had seven years of tribulation in which he became as a beast. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, he said the following. This comes from Daniel 4.34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Yeah, we could stop right there. (laughs) Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth, are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the powers of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Should be clear to you from this text that Israel's God is the God above all gods. (laughs) And, somebody say and. He's the God of all nations. The sons of men may not always understand what Adonai is planning, but it's clear that his plans stand forever and cannot be altered by any opposing power. The fact that the king of Babylon, who's a Gentile, by the way, came to understand this so clearly, and that our whole chapter, a whole chapter of Daniel is dedicated to his own testimony. The testimony of a Gentile king makes it into the Bible as a complete chapter. That's profound beyond measure. Yeah. As you guys are listening tonight, if Nebuchadnezzar came to understand these things, how much more yeah. should you as enlightened sons of God come to those conclusions? Come on yeah. Jeremiah 49 continues in the address of 10 Gentile kingdoms that the Lord shows total sovereignty over. We want to remind you what they are on this slide. We've already covered Egypt, Philistia, and Moab. The kingdoms that are in red are our topics tonight. In this next map, you'll get an idea of their general locations, so... We'll refresh that throughout the evening. You can see Edom at the bottom of the screen, somewhere right around 7 o'clock. And then Moab, then Ammon, then Kedar, working our way up to Damascus of Syria. That's the region that is in view. You'll notice they're all neighbors to Israel. So we're going to focus on Ammon, Edom, Syria, Kedar, Hazor, and Elam tonight. But something that is kind of fun. Since we're Gentiles, I'm going to suggest an approach to you in this text that is somewhat peculiar. I want you to listen to them as you were listening to the addresses in the book of Revelation. You're Gentiles. We're all from Gentile nations. So we're going to adopt a homiletic from Revelation. He who has an ear, at least one, he who has an ear... Hear what the Spirit says to the Gentile nations. Our great king addressed in the book of Revelation seven churches. Those churches are not you, and yet the Spirit speaks something to you through what he said to those churches. Since we are Gentiles, we think it's appropriate that when God is speaking to a Gentile nation, that we see what the Spirit would speak to us as if we were standing there. Amen. As you do this, we trust that you'll find personal application for your own life in every single nation that's being addressed. Lastly, please remember the parable that we've given you several, several times. It has helped to shape our thoughts about this book. It's helped to aid us in our understanding of what's happening. There was a great king with his firstborn son and many servants. The king became displeased that that firstborn son and his servants were disobedient. So the king takes one of his servants and commands that servant to spank his firstborn son. After the firstborn son is corrected, the great king then proceeds to discipline all of his servants in a specific order, and he saves the one who spanked his firstborn son for last. Tonight we will get to the ninth kingdom. Next week we begin Babylon, the one who spanked his son. So JJ, will you pray for us? And then Miss Jen, you'll begin reading in Jeremiah 49.
1: It's talented. It's wow.
0: You. He who has in ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. If God takes the time to address a nation, do not think that you are exempt from that address simply because you were not born in that nation. These principles are universally applicable to all of us. Amen. If you keep that in mind as we move through the text tonight, then there will not be a wasted line in it for your life.
2: Amen. Let's pick up with the Ammonites in verse 1. Concerning
3: the Ammonites, this is what the Lord says. Has Israel no sons? Has she no heirs? Why then has Molech taken possession of Gad? Why do his
2: people live in his town? All right, so we're going to show you this map again, and this is going to help you place Ammon. Ammon is slightly northeast of Jerusalem, across the Jordan and what is in present-day Jordan. Now, as we go through this prophecy... You're going to want to remember how this nation began. And that is in Genesis 19, verse 30 to 38. In verse 30, Lot and his two daughters left Zor and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zor. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day, the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to lie with us. As is the custom all over the earth. Mm. Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night, they got their father to drink wine. And the older daughter went in and lay with him. It's funny that some of them
0: immediately cried out, Ew, that's because (laughs) their mothers haven't told them the truth about their family lines.
2: No, we don't have anybody from Arkansas in here
0: you think that your lineage is noble, you just haven't dug deep enough.
2: <laughs> Nevertheless, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day the older daughter oh, said strange. to the younger, Last night I lay with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight as you go in and lie with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also. And the younger daughter went and lay with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. Yikes. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. So the nation of Ammon are the direct descendants of Lot's youngest daughter. They are like a cousin nation to yeah. Israel. <laughs> and like first some of my own cousins, you guys have seen pictures on Facebook, their origins are not something the family likes to talk about. It's a serious, touchy subject. <laughs> the next thing that you will need to remember is how Israel and Ammon dealt with each other during the conquest of Canaan.
4: Aren't you glad that Triester took care of Genesis 19? (laughs) (laughs) I know I am. Listen to Deuteronomy 2. It's the truth. (laughs) Like Triester said, this is how the Lord specifically stated that these two nations were to deal with each other. This is Deuteronomy 2, starting in verse 17. The Lord said to me, Today you are to pass by the region of Moab at Ar. When you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them, war, for I will not give you possession of any land belonging to the Ammonites. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. So, right here, God is specifically warning Israel not to harass or provoke their own relatives. The Ammonites were given an inheritance by God, and it was distinct from Israel's own inheritance. It was a completely different plot of land. Israel honored this arrangement, and by doing so, they honored the God who had commanded the arrangement. Continue reading in verse 20 with us. That, too, was considered a land of the Rephaites. Come on now. Who used to live there. But the Ammonites called them Zamzamites. They were a people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. Mm -hmm. Check out the next line. The Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites, who drove them out and settled in their place. This is so shocking. It's shocking for most Christians to realize that the Ammonites, not only did they have their own separate land grant, but they also had to fight giants to obtain it, just like Israel did. Wow. The text is clear, that the Lord destroyed the giants before the Ammonites, who in turn drove them out of their land grant? Wow. This shows Adonai as the God of the nations, yeah. working out his specific plan for each of the nations.
0: Yeah. It not only shows that he's the God of the nations, it shows that he has geographical boundaries designed for those nations. Yeah. Israel is in a covenant with God as a people and with the land. And with their God. That is unique and it's beautiful, but he also has ge- geographic designated areas for nations yep. to dwell in. Wow. Yes. Okay. It's not as if Israel was set loose to just go take over the world. They had very specific boundaries that are theirs. That is an entirely different view than just the strong take it.
4: With that new revelation... We need to go back and reread verse 1 again. Concerning the Ammonites, this is what the Lord says. Has Israel no
3: sons? Has she no heirs? Why then has Molech taken possession of Gad? Why do his people live in its town?
5: Okay, so has Israel no sons, that phrase. And the phrase, has she no heirs, is a reference to God's intention that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would all receive their inheritances as a specific land grant, With their children. With the generations of children. For more on that, you can read Genesis 15. You can read Genesis 17. Genesis 26. And Genesis 35. And for a New Testament reference, Hebrews 11. Israel had not interfered with the inheritance of the Ammonites. But the Ammonites were trying to take the inheritance of Israel as if they were no longer heirs to receive it. While the nation is definitely being called into account, notice that the archon, Molech, is being singled out. Mm-hmm. This should call to mind Psalm 82, 1-8. through 8. Psalm 82. God has
6: taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly, the gods being the subject of his statements, and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods, (laughs) sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Verse 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Thanks. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
6: if you don't understand this reference, please review the teachings on celestial powers, yeah. or star power series is, I believe, how we titled it inside of the app. Molech is a real spiritual power, an Elohim, a being that it was entrusted with part of the nations. He's being called to account for misleading the people of Ammon, and he will be judged for his actions. As we go on to verse 2, keep in mind that the Ammonites are trying to take the land of Israel and their family. They're like cousins of Israel and trying to seize Israel's inheritance while they're in a desperate situation. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 2.
3: But the days are coming, declares the Lord. And I will sound the battle cry against Rabbah of the Ammonites. It will become a mound of ruins, and its surrounding villages will be set on fire. Then Israel will drive out those who drove her out, says the Lord. So when you're looking at this, if you're not immediately
0: familiar with the Older Testament history, it, it could be confusing. As so often is the case with biblical prophecy, more than one thing is going on. This is being prophesied in the leading up to the Babylonian exile, in which the Ammonite capital of Rabbah will become a mound of ruins at the hands of the Babylonians. For more on that, you can read Ezekiel 21, 18 through 22. However, the prophecy extends beyond that time and foretells of a day when Israel will drive all of the Ammonites out of Israel's inheritance. Mm -hmm. So Babylon is the one that destroyed their capital cities but the secondary issue that was not dealt with during the Babylonian campaign is prophesied that Israel will drive Ammonites out of the inheritance that God gave Israel that Ammon was trying to hold. That has profound
3: implications for the Middle East map today. Alright, picking up in verse 3. Well, O Eye is destroyed. Cry out, O inhabitants of Rabbah! Put on sackcloth and mourn. Rush here and there inside the walls, for Molech will go into exile. Wow! Together with his priests and officials.
2: Man, did y'all catch that? Not only is the archon Molech being viewed as going into exile, but notice that he has priests that are going into exile with him. Huh. He has officials. That are going into exile. And the people are within their control. Molech the God going into exile. With priest officials and people under their control. Now this is of extraordinary interest. When you consider that Adonai chose the nation of Israel. He chose Israel. And Jesus is the head of that nation. Within the nation which is likened unto a body. Have you guys been hearing about that lately? There are members that could be thought of as priests, officials, and the supporting members that make up the body of Israel. In fact, Paul describes it in those terms in Ephesians 4, 15 through 16.
4: Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work i love how the spirit of god connects these kind of concepts he makes sure that what we're preaching on what we're teaching on the conversations that we have are all connected with each other during our weeks yeah, also what is so interesting is that molech is viewed in contrast with this imagery Molech, the archon, the spiritual head of rebellion to Yahweh. He is leading the members of his own body into the judgment of God rather than the will of Adonai. We have a slide from Deuteronomy 32 for you. This is Deuteronomy 32, verses 37 through 43 in the Lexham Septuagint. As we get ready to read that,
0: we need to make sure that you're understanding what we're saying. Biblically speaking, Jesus is the head of a nation. His neck extends to the earth, and we are his body, and his feet are on the earth through us, and he'll crush Satan through those feet. Well, Molech is viewed exactly the same way, but not in submission to Yahweh, as a power in the heavens with a neck and body that extend to the earth and are carrying Metaphorically, the people into captivity with him. The judgment is on Molech, and it happens to be the rest of his body, which is the nation under his control. So in Deuteronomy
3: 32,
4: verse 37, And the Lord said, Where are their gods upon whom they have relied on them, whose fat of their sacrifices you were eating? And you are drinking the wine of their drink offerings. Let them arise and assist you and become your protectors. See, see that I am. And there is no God except me. I will kill and make a lot. Wow. I will strike and heal. And there is none who will deliver from my hands. For I will lift my hand into heaven. Wow. Does that not sound like judgment on the archons in the heavens? Yeah. He doesn't lift his hand towards heaven. He lifts his hands into heaven. Wow. And I will swear by my right hand, and I will say, I will live forever. For I will sharpen my dagger like lightning, and my hand will cleave to judgment. And I will recompense my enemies with vengeance. And those who hate, I will repent. I will make my arrows drunk from bloodshed of the wounded and of the captives. From the head of the rulers of the enemies. These are those archons that we were talking about. Delight, O heavens, with him and worship him, you sons of God. Delight, O nations, with his people. You see, all the nations are God's inheritance. And prevail with him, all you angels of God, heavenly beings. For he will avenge the blood of his sons. And he will avenge and he will repay the enemies with vengeance. And he will repay those who hate, and the Lord will cleanse out the land of his people.
0: As Peyton gets ready to read this next point, you have something of a celestial custody battle going on. God chose one nation and said, this is my body. But every nation on earth belongs to him and yet was under the control of other spiritual powers. And he said, I'm going to avenge the blood of my sons. You guys aren't leading them well, and I'm taking them back. That's what Psalm 82 is all about. It's actually what your Bible is about. It's just not what your Sunday school teachers told you.
5: You can see that as far back as Moses' day, Adonai promised to deal with these rebellious spiritual heads, that is archons in the Greek, and cause his sons to rejoice. These judgments are designed to break the connection between them and the archons. Do you remember that from last week? To destroy the sinful self-reliance of the nation and allow a remnant to turn towards salvation. Man. This wow. was his intent. He wants to separate his people from these demonic powers, these archons. Let's go ahead and move on to verse 4. Why do you boast of your values?
3: Boast of your values so group? Mm. Oh, unfaithful daughter, you trust in your riches and say, who will attack me?
6: You guys remember in Deuteronomy 2 that Amon was given a specific inheritance by God? Yep. Now was it just totally empty and free, or did they have to fight? They, fight? they fought just like Israel against giants, and they were named Anakim. The specific boast being made here is somewhat obscured in our translations. But if you take a look at the Acts, it calls the valleys, the valleys of the Anakim. The idea is that Moab was boastful, proud even, of driving out the Anakim as if they had done it by their own ability or merit. Adonai calls them a daughter, but she's an unfaithful daughter. Saints, this is a double entendre of sorts. She was unfaithful in the beginning, unfaithful now in the present. Her origin started in some lasciviousness, drinking her father into incest. And yet there have been serious moments where God had delivered her. But she has accredited those moments to her own strength and her own accord. This unfaithfulness reaches an all-time high. When the Ammonite king king Bayliss, been debating how to pronounce that all day.
0: It, it really it's it's a very interesting phonetic word. B-A-A-L-I-S. I you can guess what
6: Yeah. This, this king named uh Bayliss sent men to kill Gedalia. Ah. How Steve Thomas, how would you say that? oh,
0: it's okay. It's alright. <laughs> I won't put you on the spot. <laughs>
6: That was found in Jeremiah 40, 11 through 14. When there was a singular remnant left in Israel, he sent a man to go kill that leader. Wow. Are you saints ready for some personal application? Yeah. Yeah. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the nations. Yeah. Is Amon's behavior really that different than a Christian that God is merciful to, even though they are not pure the Christian sees some giants fall during the course of their walk, but never commit to total purity in their walk. Wow. Like an unfaithful daughter that has shown mercy, they treat the mercy as a license for continued immorality. So often in these cases, the Christian prefers to direct their hostility toward other sons and daughters that are walking rightly, rather than Declaring war on their own unfaithfulness. Mm -hmm. And what the Spirit says to the nations.
0: You think maybe we could learn something from that? Let's pick up
3: in verse
5: 5.
3: I will bring terror on you from all those around you, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Every one of you will be driven away, and no one will gather the fugitives. Wow. This is pretty similar to other prophecies.
0: But God never wastes a word. It's interesting to note that Lot and his daughters fled from Sodom and Gomorrah like fugitives. This was largely because they settled in a place that they should not have. And then they negotiated the terms of their resettlement in ways they should not have. Oh my goodness! They were told to go to the city of Zor and they didn't. They went to a cave because they were scared. Then this led to incestuous sin in a cave outside of Zor. To us, this seems to have parallels in Christians that have been shown saving mercy but have failed to ever rid themselves of impurity. This plunges those Christians into a repeating cycle of constantly trying to renegotiate God's actual standards until Adonai himself must bring terror on them from every side. Look, if you're having trouble following this application, you should know that Jesus had a brother named Jude. And Jude made exactly the same application from the same passage.
2: This is Jude 4 through 10. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. He's talking, about, he's talking to the church. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt... But later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority. But abandoned their own home. These he has kept in darkness. Bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way. Sodom and Gomorrah. And the surrounding towns. Gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer The punishment of eternal fire in the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. So
0: follow this through that passage. He starts off by discussing his people leaving Egypt, being saved, but most of them being destroyed, even though they had previously been saved. Then he moves to angelic powers that were in right standing with God, but will be destroyed because they did not walk rightly with God. Then very specifically, he moves to Sodom and Gomorrah, where Lot and his family were saved from, but we're reading a passage tonight about the destruction of most of the people because they did not walk rightly with God Although their origins started in salvation. Tell me there's not a message for that. For us
2: in that. Hey, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. That passage says that they served as an example of those who suffer this punishment. Thank God we have an example and we can walk away from this kind of behavior. Amen. 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 And let's pick up in verse 6.
3: Yet afterward, I will restore the fortune of the Ammonites.
4: Okay, so after terror, after fugitives, after being on the run and being thrust into all the nations around them, that's what it took. That's what it took for them to be separated from the powers of the archon that were over them. But what about that phrase, yet afterward? What an empowering phrase that is. What a hopeful phrase that is for the people of Ammon. Truly the mercies of God to preserve a remnant. They're to be extolled. They're to be extolled by us. Church, as we move on towards Edom, make sure that you are found in that remnant who is indeed saved.
7: Amen.
4: Now, when we say in the remnant who
0: is saved, we mean who was saved, who are being saved, and who will continue to be saved Because the overwhelming testimony of scripture is that starting in salvation is not nearly the same as finishing in salvation.
3: Concerning Edom, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Is there no longer wisdom in Taman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom decayed? Turn and flee, hide in deep caves, you who live in the dam.
5: For I will bring disaster on Esau. At the time, I punished him. So we're here in some of the same language. We want to remind you of this map, because we're now talking about Edom. You can see from the map that Edom is about two inches south of Ammon. We're moving (laughs) south. (laughs) So do you remember how the Ammonites destroyed the Anakites? Yeah. We just read about that? Just to be clear, the Anakites are not my people. (laughs) I received none of those genetics. But as you turn to Deuteronomy thing. 2, we're going to look at what it says about the Edomites. Verse 22. The Lord has done the same for the descendants of Esau, who lived in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them. They drove them out. It's always good li- to get rid of Horites, baby. Yes. <laughs> <Fantastic>. <laughs> the Lord knows how to clean house. They drove them out and have lived in their place to this day. And as for the Abites, ...who live in the villages as far as Gaza, the Caparites, coming out of Kapdor, destroyed them and settled in their place. Now listen, Israel is not just... Uh, Esau is not just a relative of Israel. He's the twin brother of Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now most of you will remember that Genesis 36 recounts how Esau despised his birthright and sold it for food... ...and how the book of Hebrews implies that he was sexually immoral... But this did not stop Adonai from blessing him with an inheritance and helping him destroy the enemies within the land. Wow. Do you see that
0: God did it for the Ammonites and for the Edomites? Yes. Yes. And they were both relatives. Yes. But among relatives, the Ammonites were like cousins, and the Edomites are the twin brother. Wow. So which one should be closer?
5: You have to think about it as a twin brother. If you've ever been around twins, you know how close they can be. But this is why it's so egregious that the Edomites denied Israel passage through their land while Israel was trying to enter their promised land, right? As we expound on this in Numbers 20, verse 18, Judah's going to help us out with that. As Peyton said,
6: they were denied the ability to pass through their land.
5: This is Numbers 20,
6: verse 18. But Edom answered, you may not pass through here. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. Brothers like that, who needs enemies, <laughs> right? <laughs> the
8: Israelites replied,
6: <laughs> We won't our last Thanksgiving uh, with the extended family, Judah. Yeah, that was about seven years ago for a reason. <laughs> we will go along the main road. And if we, or our livestock, drink any of your water, we will pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. Again they answered, you may not pass through. Then Edom came out against them with a large and powerful army. Since Edom refused to let them go through their territory, Israel turned away from them. Saints, if this is not bad enough, Second Chronicles 20 details Edom joining with Ammon and Moab to fight against Israel. Sounds like some of the most recent court cases we've been around. We have all of these relatives, including the twin brother, joining together to fight against Israel. Even though they had been given their own land and God helped them clear it. Now, if all of this was not bad enough, listen to Psalm 137, verse 7. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundation. The Bible actually records the descendants of Jacob's twin brother Esau as crying out, tear it down to the foundations. They were rejoicing over the fall of Jerusalem and crying out for the destruction of the temple. The history of the Edomites is truly wretched. The Herods were descendants of Esau. In the times of the Romans, Edomites were called Edomians. Is that ringing a bell for anybody? King Herod was an Edomian or an Edomite. And he wore the title King of the Jews. That rightfully belonged to Jesus and none other. This is the same family responsible for the slaughter of the innocents. Perhaps this is the best example of the nature of Esau and his descendants. Mm -hmm. They are demonstrably shown throughout the scripture trying to usurp Jacob and his descendants. Now, I know some of you could be tempted to believe that blame should be laid at Jacob's feet for his initial deception. But in our view, and in the view of the context of Scripture, the root has always been that Esau never valued his own birthright. Are you guys ready to make personal application? He who has an ear, just one, let him hear what the Spirit says to the nations, to the Gentiles this any different than a Christian who does not truly embrace his own calling because he's envious of what someone else is called to do? Mm-hmm. Or any different than holding a, or a, a liturgical title that did not come from God? Like, you know, this man has the title uh, elder or reverend, but it has nothing to do with his actual content of character but you're envious of the honor that is given that title. Esau represents something that is never satisfied with what God has provided and is always looking around with envy. Are you beginning to
0: make some personal applications? Yes. Yes. As we get back into the text, you should notice that most of the prophecies name a specific archon. You'll hear names like (laughs) Molech, Names like Pimosh as being the head of the nation and the one that's chiefly responsible for the negative prophecy to the nation. However, when addressing the Edomites, only Esau is named. (laughs) Mm, Things that make you question, right? Perhaps this is because Esau's problem was that he was his own god. The very same thing could be said for every Christian that is self-directed and chooses what he does and does not do. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I mean, While the Lord's helping us, maybe we'll, we'll just get back in verse 9. There may be a little more Esau in all of us than we would like to let on.
3: Yeah. If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? If thieves came during the night, would they not steal only as much as
0: Okay, when you're reading that, I don't know, it's a little bit like listening to my friend Raja tell a joke. I'm sure it's very funny in Tamil, but by the time it makes it to English, uh, I, I think it's funny that he's telling it. I have no idea what he's saying, though. What is in view here is this is a reference to the ruthless nature of Edom's hatred of the Jews. See... The Torah forbids the Jewish nation to go back over a harvest of grapes a second time. There had to be something left for widows and orphans and the foreigner traveling within their land. The idea here when God says, if grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? If thieves came during the night, would they not steal only as much as they wanted? Is a thief would fill his belly and run. Uh, A normal harvesting crew would leave something. But Esau showed no restraint in his treatment of his twin brother.
3: And God takes it rather personally.
2: All right. Verse 10. But I will strip Esau bare. Oh. I will uncover his hiding places so
1: that he cannot conceal himself. His His children, relatives, and neighbors will
3: perish, and he will be no more. Leave your orphans. I will protect their lives. Your widows, too, can trust in me.
2: Wow. All right. So instead of separating the people from the archon and destroying self-reliance so that a remnant can be preserved, Adonai is saying here that he will strip Esau's bare and only save the orphans and widows who trust in him. Those are the only people that are going to be saved. There's not going to be a remnant. Just those people, orphans and widows.
0: It, it's much more severe than anything that he says to Philistia. It's much more severe than anything that he says to most nations. And it's because this nation is the closest relative and they act the most hostile. Now, we're not going to make personal application for you and your family members, but it's worth thinking about. Yeah.
2: Yeah. What God is saying here, this is the kindness and the sternness of God. This is the sternness to those who are treating their brothers the wrong way, but the kindness to those who trust in God. Let's pick up in verse 12. This is what the Lord
3: says. If those who do not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, why should you go unpunished? You will not go unpunished, but must drink it.
2: So if righteous believers must drink the cup of suffering, What will be the outcome of the unrighteous who must drink the cup of his wrath? Are you catching what he's saying here? If the righteous believers must drink the cup of suffering, nobody's excluded. What's the outcome of the unrighteous who are also going to drink of that same cup of his wrath?
0: Now, What do you think that does to rapture theology? (laughs) If those who do not deserve the wrath of God must still drink from the cup of suffering, then how about those that do deserve it? But do you see that he says those that don't deserve it must drink from it? Yeah, It's an honor.
2: It, it, it is on. an honor. Yes, Alright, pick up verse 13.
3: I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that Bosra will become a ruin and an object of horror, of reproach, and of curse, And all its towns
4: We cannot talk about Basra and just skip by it. We have a few passages for you because Basra is a very, very significant and terrifying place in the last days. Listen to Isaiah 34, and we're going to be reading through verses 4, 4 through 9. All the stars of the heavens will be dissolved. Sounds like a minor event that could have happened in the first century. (laughs) This definitely has not happened yet, is what we're hinting at. And the sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall, like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Remember Deuteronomy 32? With his arm into the heavens in judgment? My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom, down to the earth. It started in the heavens and works its way down. The people I have totally destroyed. The sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. That's terrifying. That's terrifying. (laughs) It is covered with fat, the blood of lambs and goats, fat from the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in Edom. And the wild oxen will fall with them, the bull calves and the great bulls. Their land will be drenched with blood, and the dust will be soaked with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution, to uphold Zion's cause. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur. Her land will become blazing pitch. This is one of the fiercest judgments that you can find. In the Old Testament, it is a judgment that is to come, and it is fierce and terrifying because of Edom's relation with his
5: brother and with the nation of Israel. Yeah. Let's go further in Isaiah 34, verses 11 through 13. The desert owl and screech owl will possess it, the gray owl and the raven will nest there. God will stretch out over Edom the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line. Of desolation. I want to draw your attention to the words chaos and desolation. Those words are tohu, vavohu. Yeah. Listen, he will destroy them so badly that it will look like the earth before God proclaimed the words, "Let there be light."
0: If that doesn't get your attention. I don't know what would. He is,
5: he is angry about this situation. Verse twelve: Her nobles will have nothing there to be called a kingdom. Sounds like desolation. All her princes will vanish. Away. Thorns will overrun their citadels, nettles and brambles her strongholds. She will become a haunt for jackals and a home for owls. Wow. This is how God feels about a brother who is not acting as a brother. Ooh, wow. We can learn from Edom. We need to get our brotherhood right in this place. Right. But let's move on to Isaiah 63. Isaiah
6: 63, verses 1 through 6. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forth in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to say, Why are your garments red, like those of one treading the winepress? <laughs> Good question. It's a, that's a <laughs> that's great a question. question. And let, let's ask another question first.
0: Who do you think is speaking when he says, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to say? Jesus.
6: It's a theory. Let's see. Now, maybe it's uh, <laughs> the blood of the lamb, his sacrifice. Yeah, or, he's covered
4: or, in his own blood. Maybe yeah, I don't know. Uh,
6: yes. We'll see. So my son or pretty pastel watercolors from an Episcopalian church. <laughs> <laughs> but why are your garments red? Like those of one treading the winepress I'm trodden the winepress alone From the nations no one was with me I trampled them in my anger And trod them down in my wrath Their blood splattered my garments And I stained all my clothing huh. For the day of vengeance was in my heart And the year of my redemption has come I looked but there was no one to help I was appalled that no one gave support, so my own arm worked salvation for me. And my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. And my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Guys, before we get to Revelation 19, between Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 63, is about as strong a judgment language as you can get on this side of eternity. One of the things that's
0: most interesting about it to those that spend their time contemplating these things is he said he tramples the nations. He says it multiple times. But his landing place, his starting place for the circular motion around Jerusalem seems to be Basra. He starts with that nearest relative that behaved the worst and works his way around. That's an interesting concept. How many of you are looking forward to uh, Lindo Cooley singing "That We'll Ride with You" uh, or seeing <laughs> Jesus on a white horse? Right? Yes. Let's read Revelation nineteen eleven together. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Where did he get bloody, friends? Basra, a great sacrifice beginning with Esau's descendants. Why? Because from the onset of God's plan... They worked against their own twin brother to try to stop it from happening. In spite of the fact that God was good enough to them to give them their own land and help them drive out celestial contaminants within the people. When you've been forgiven and you go out and choke somebody that owes you a debt, well... You might have a little Esau in you yet. Mm. Wow. You really have to engage with the seriousness of this. Because you shouldn't think of this as somebody else somewhere else. No. These prophecies are to the Gentiles. Wow. And you and I are pork-eating Gentiles. <laughs> yeah. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him. They're not fat, naked babies playing harps. (laughs) Armies are formed for a specific reason. You need to change your views of what you think Messiah is and adopt a more son of David like view. He is coming to win. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on a white horse and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a scepter, with an iron scepter. Hear this phrase. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Is God furious? With rebellious nations? Yes. Yes. But where does he start? Basra. Basra. From Isaiah 34 to Isaiah 63 to Revelation 19, the twin brother that is a false brother gets the most severe treatment. A remnant of orphans and widows will be saved, but the nation itself will be totally destroyed, never to rise again. In the coming verses, what we're about to read, they've already been hinted at all over the place. Edom is likened unto Sodom and Gomorrah as far as the extent of the judgment that will fall on the nation for no other reason than he is a twin brother that is a false brother that God did great things for But he made it his life's ambition to stop God from doing something for his brother.
2: Mm
1: -hmm.
2: All right, verse 14.
3: I have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Assemble yourselves and attack it. Rise up for battle. Now I will make you small among the nations, despised among men. The terror you inspire and the pride of your heart have, have deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, who occupy the heights of the hill, though you build your nest as high as the eagles, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord.
2: Did you see the eagle imagery there? Yeah. You see in scripture, God is the protecting wings of the eagle, as well as the swooping judgment of the eagle, yeah. the other side of the eagle. Yes. Here Esau has ascended in his actions To usurping God. And he will be brought down. It says that the pride of his heart. Has deceived him. And he built his nest as high as the eagles. He thought he was over his brother. Because he thought. He was over God. And God is going to swoop down him. With that eagle imagery. Pick up in verse 17.
3: He don't become an object of horror. All who pass by. Will be appalled and will scoff. Because of all its.
2: so for time's sake, we will not get into the parallels with the crucifixion, but every false brother is in some way very much like Esau, passing by, scoffing because of the wounds that they see on their brother. Wow. Picking up in verse 18.
3: As, as Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrown, along with their neighboring towns, says the Lord, no one will live there. No man
4: How was the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Was that a pleasant experience for those people? No. You ever met anybody from Sodom and Gomorrah?
0: (laughs) Don't confuse a Sodomite with somebody who lives in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's just named for his likeness of the practice. But you've never met anybody from there because when God judged it, it was
5: done. Yeah. I,
4: I mean, even today, even several thousand years after the occurrence Even in our society, halfway across the world, you still hear people saying like Sodom and Gomorrah and using it for situations around them. That's the kind of impact that the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah had on the rest of the world. And that's the kind of impact that the Lord is speaking about Edom. Wipe them off the map. Wipe them off the face of the earth. There is no provision in this prophecy here with Edom. For a phrase like, yet afterwards, I will restore the fortunes of Esau. No. It's not here. There's no provision for that in the text. Which means that we absolutely, all of us, need to take note that God hates false brothers. Pick up with us in verse 19. Linton. Right, listen closely. Like, like a lion coming up
3: from, the, from Jordan's thickets to a rich pasture land, I will chase
5: from its land, in an instant.
3: <laughs> who is the chosen
5: one? I will appoint for this. Okay, here. Think. Who is the appointed one to chase Edom? Mm. Who is like me, and, can, and who can challenge me? Challenge me when I come from come to Basra. Yeah. And what shepherd can stand against me? Okay, so this might be a possible reference to the Antichrist. Mm. Okay, verse twenty. You gotta love God's
0: little sense of humor, though. Yeah. I shouldn't say little. That's scary that I said that. <laughs> you shouldn't. You, you have to love God's magnificent, <laughs> yeah. grandiose yeah. sense of humor. Yeah. That's right. yeah. He likes to say something and then just mix into it a question like, Yeah, who's gonna stop me? I mean, think of how thought provoking these verses are. Who is the chosen one mm-hmm. I will appoint for the task I've just described? I want you to also consider that you now know the answer. His name is Jesus the Christ. Because he's the one that carries that out. But in Jeremiah's day, they're looking forward to who would this be. I want you to know when he says, who is like me and who can challenge me. It's an open contest to all of those archons that are leading their people astray. Okay? Then... When he says, and what shepherd can stand against me? It, it's an open challenge. Yeah. Hey, you guys that are shepherding the nations astray, which one of you think you can stop me?
1: Yeah.
0: And apparently, if the book of Revelation is to be believed, and I kind of think you do or you wouldn't be sitting here, there will be a shepherd that believes exactly that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
8: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Let's continue in verse 20. Therefore, hear what the Lord has planned against me. He has purposed against those who live in Tamar. The young of the flock will be dragged away. He will completely destroy their pasture because of them. At the sound of their fall, the earth will tremble. Their cry, their cry will resound to the Red Sea. Look, an eagle will soar and swoop down, spreading its wings over Bosra. Mm-hmm. In that day, the hearts of Edom's
5: warriors will be like the heart of a woman. That God just reduces great armies to women Yeah (laughs) And like Pastor Eric was saying He's so confident in what he will accomplish His plan will be done on earth You'll see that all the prophets Contain references like these Like Habakkuk 3.3 God came from Timan, The Holy One from Mount Paran Selah Think about it (laughs) His glory covered the heavens And his praise filled the earth Listen, God is coming in judgment, and he is viewed as coming from Edom. After what? Settling an issue with a false brother. Ooh. Wow. So guys, I just want you to consider
6: the irony for a moment. We're in a day and age where we're working to feminize our military in every way possible. Yeah. While nations that are adversaries of ours, like China, are running campaigns about masculinizing their society once again. God, insulting his enemy that he intends to crush is saying that your soldiers will be like women on that day. Yeah. They, they, of course, respond, no, 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 it's
0: a fluid situation. Today I'm a man.
5: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what has been insulting throughout biblical history is now being embraced by our joint chiefs of staff. Yeah, wow,
6: yeah. If that's not an indication of coming judgment based upon the descriptions in the scripture, I don't know what is. See what Amos has to say about it. Amos 1.12 I will send fire upon Timon. that will consume the fortresses of Basra. Over and over and over again in the scripture, these cities are named as being consumed and reduced to rubble. Obadiah 9-10 through Verse 9 through 10 says, Your warriors of Timon will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountain will be cut down in the slaughter. Are you noticing that we're referring to Esau's mountain again as the head of the nation? There's terror that is gripping them. Because of the violence against your brother, Jacob. Guys, how far away are we from the Genesis account? But this is the spirit of the situation. You will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. We need to move on because of our time restraints. But as we mentioned earlier, the eagle imagery is pervasive and provocative. It is describing an event where you can either be soaring on eagles' wings, the Lord is lifting you on high, or you are beneath the Lord as an eagle coming down to catch you. Additionally, the nations are viewed in labor pain. They do more than, they do not produce salvation, but they do more than that. They cause a working inside of them that is gripping them, but does not produce life. There is a tribulation that is associated with every other nation, like what we've been reading about in Jeremiah. Luke 21, 1 Thessalonians 5. They say that this will happen to the whole world. Are you tracking with me for a minute? Yeah. We've been talking about the days of Jacob's trouble. But every nation right, unrighteous throughout the earth, there's going to be a day of their trouble yeah, that is coming yeah. upon
0: them. Which is pretty funny when you consider that people say, Oh, it's Jacob's trouble. So it's Israel that goes through that tribulation. No, the Bible makes the consistent claim that every nation is going to travail during this time. Yeah. <laughs> and even those that don't
6: deserve to drink the cup have to drink the cup. Lest we think that we're insulated with an ocean between us and Israel, currently believing ourselves strong, consider the attributes of Esau. Esau was a mighty warrior, and he was a hunter. But when faced with the wrath of the Lamb, his warriors are going to become like women. As we go on to Damascus, which will have its own set of events, Christian, be very careful about despising your own birthright your emotions, your attitude, and your thoughts. Be even more careful about wanting someone else's. Make it your ambition to be proud of your brothers and satisfied with whatever you have received from heaven as a divine allotment. You know who was a good example in that regard?
0: We need to rename him because he wasn't Baptist. We should say John the Immerser. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing he ever had in common with the Baptist church is that he didn't record miracles. (laughs) (laughs) In situations that could be viewed as jealous, he simply said, a man can only receive that which he was given from heaven. Do you know how much that will protect you? I promise your birthright is excellent. I promise your designed inheritance is beautiful. I promise that God will not hold you guiltless if you despise it. And He will punish you with terror on every side if you try to take someone else's. Yeah. yeah. I can promise you that. Esau teaches us yeah. this lesson. But we're talking about Damascus. So help me out, Justin.
3: Concerning Damascus, Hamab and Arpad are dismayed, for they have been heard, they have heard bad news. They are disheartened, troubled, like the restless. Somebody say, Restless Seas. Restless Seas. Okay.
0: While you're thinking about that, I want to give you a map to help you understand where we're at. Because we're Americans and we're used to seeing Texas in the center of the world map. And while that has a certain wisdom to it, it's not how the Bible views it. Right in the center of that screen is Damascus, Syria. That is the region that we're talking about. And the prophecies are addressed to Damascus. But there are some ways that you know for sure that we're talking about the nation of Syria and not Damascus. To start with, Hamath is far north of Damascus, which is the next city that was mentioned. To go further with it, Arpad is further north than that. So it's it's a way to describe the capital and then the whole nation. This would be similar to saying from Los Angeles to New York and then Misunderstanding that the prophecies were about Los Angeles and New York, when in reality we're just describing all of Syria. The things spoken to Syria are applicable to the whole world. The very things that he said about restless seas, that is true for Syria, but it also is true for everyone else. I'm going to read you Luke 21, 25 to give you an idea of that. This is the Olivet Discourse. It's parallel to Matthew 24. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time... They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And if you had to pick a compass direction that you would see him coming from, just find Basra on your compass and you'll do just fine. Hey, would you pick up in verse 24 as we continue in
3: Damascus, Syria? Damascus has become feeble. She has turned to flee, and panic has gripped her. Anguish and pain have seized her, pain like that of a woman in labor.
2: All right, do you see that same imagery again and again? The labor pains that was prophesied over Israel, the labor pains prophesied over the other nation, they're also prophesied to Damascus. And again, these are labor pains that don't produce national salvation for Syria. And again, what is said to Syria is also coming on the entire earth. Yeah. Listen to Luke twenty-one thirty-four through 36. It says, be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. Man, that's a good word for our times, isn't it? And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. And that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man.
0: So we, we, uh, we have 44 minutes and we, we do have a ways to go. But we're, we're trying to draw your attention to where Jesus is speaking from. We're trying for you to be able to understand that the New Testament was not written out of a vacuum. They looked at ten nations that were being addressed in Jeremiah's day that represented the world surrounding Israel... And then it scales up and is spoken to the world. Everything that was said to these ten nations is true of all nations. And a warning for our soul in the same way that the homiletic in the book of Revelation spoken to seven churches is applicable to all churches everywhere. You all follow us now? Because we only put like eight hours into that.
3: (laughs) Verse 25, why has the city of renown not been avenged, the town in which I delight? Whoa,
4: I thought that this was a prophecy against Damascus, yeah. against Syria, against the towns in that nation. And now the Lord's speaking about them it, to be a people in whom he delights in. Yeah. This is amazing. There are several transi- translations of this verse, and we look through them all. They all include a positive reference to the town or city that God would like to find joy or delight in. He wants to delight in the nation of Syria. The tenor of this verse is kind of something like this. If they had heeded the warning, if only they had listened, because I long to delight in them. See, our God delights in the nations. He wants to find delight in the Gentile nations around Israel, but he must judge those who will not heed his instruction. How about 26 and 27? Surely her young
3: men will fall in the streets. All her soldiers will be silenced in that day, declares the Lord Almighty. I will set fire to the walls of Damascus. It will consume the fortresses of ben Wow. So as Nick said, Damascus and all of Syria
5: are, Syria are beautiful places, and the Lord wants to rejoice over them. However... The nation has the character of Ben-Hadad and his successor, Haziel. Mm -hmm. Listen, they were ordained to come into power, but what they did with that power only causes the righteous to weep. Now, we want to refresh your memory of 2 Kings 8, verses 9 through 13. Haziel went to meet Elisha. Taking with him as
6: a gift, 40 camel loads of all the finest wares of Damascus. (laughs) More on that later. Scripture is camel heavy tonight, and they're always towing stuff. (laughs) He went in and stood before him and said, Your son Ben Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to ask you, Will I recover from this illness? Elijah answered him, Go and say to him, You will certainly recover. But the Lord has revealed to me that he will, in fact, die. Let you think about that for a minute. He stared at him with a fixed gaze. Let's wow. practice that, Judith. <laughs> Until Haziel felt ashamed. Like Nick staring at you. Too, too awkward in the world. Today. I want
0: the whole church to know that when Nick Garagina makes eye contact with you, he can see your
6: soul. Yes.
3: <laughs>
6: then the man of God began to weep. Why is my lord weeping asked Hazael because I know the harm you will do the Israelites he answered you will set fire to their fortified places kill their young men with the sword dash their little children to the ground and rip open their pregnant women somebody said that's terrible that's, that's terrible. terrible here's response hazael said how could your servant a mere dog accomplish such a feat such a feat sounds like you took it as a challenge i think you did yeah. it's a compliment the Lord has shown me that you will be king of a ram, answered Elisha. As these men were ordained to hold the positions that they did. But what they did with those positions made the prophet weep, seeing the future. Mm. These men felt shame when confronted with the fixed gaze of a prophet, but did not repent from their actions. And I don't think we have time to draw parallels between shame and the room when our eyes meet with you. Mm. Well, maybe we will make some practical applications. (laughs) He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the nations. Is this really different than a Christian ordained to lead his family, minister in his workplace, or be a light to his neighbor? Damascus represents Gentiles that have been entrusted with authority from the God of Israel. What have you done with that God-entrusted authority? It's common for believers to feel shame when confronted with the fixed stare of the prophet or pastor. But that is not nearly as important as actually amending your behavior.
0: Come on, church. You should respond to that. Look, if we had time, we would all just stop and camp out on the true meaning of the parable of the talent. That's, that's, that's where we'd spend the basis of the rest of our time. But we don't have that time. Let's just say it this way. and I will hold us accountable for what he's entrusted us with. The Bible actually says we're seated in heavenly realms with Messiah. So you're accountable for acting like that's true. The Bible actually says that we will rule the nations with Messiah. So you're accountable for acting like that is true. And if we misuse this kind of lavish authority, how could we be held innocent? 1 yeah. Corinthians 4.1 says it this way. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Faithful. Mm -hmm. Proving faithful is not at all about believing something. Proving faithful is demonstrable actions that are faithful. We need to never get confused. The fact that you believe that you were credited with righteousness does not mean in any way, shape, or form that you then do not have a requirement to become righteous. Right. Yeah. These Ben-hadad and Haziel were given positions by God, the God of Israel through the mouth of the prophet of Israel, but what they did with those positions made heaven weep. Mm-hmm. Let that settle on us for just a minute. Oh.
2: Listen to 1 John 2:28 through 29 on that note. And insert yourself into the scripture. And now dear children. Continue in him. So that when he appears. Or when he has his fixed gaze on you. Or when your pastors have their fixed gaze on you. We may be confident and unashamed. Before him at his coming. That is the goal. If you know that he is righteous. You know that everyone who does what is right. Has been born of him. If God has spoken to you and you are doing what is right with what he has spoken, then you do not have to be unashamed. Or you don't have to be ashamed at his fixed gaze. And you can know his grace
0: is upon you when you have done something right because you can't do it if he does not empower you to do it. So it is in the doing of what is right faithfully that you know that his hand is actually on you. Standing around believing you're righteous does nothing for you. Acting righteously as he empowers you is proof that God is actually with you. Otherwise, you may just be self-deceived. And most of the church seems to be that way. All right. Verses
4: 28 and 29. Concerning Kadar and the kingdoms of Hazor. Alright, so we're making a transition here. Who are we speaking about now? Kadar. Kadar
0: and the of Azor. Kedar and Azor. We're squeezing two of them into one prophecy. Come on yeah. now. Wow.
3: Which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked. This is what the Lord says: Arise and attack Qadar and destroy the place of the people, destroy the people of the east. Their tents and their flocks will be taken. Their shelters will be carried off. All their goods and camels.
4: Goodness, more camels,
3: huh? Big <laughs> <laughs> to them. Terror on every side.
4: Okay, so Qadar and Hazor are two kingdoms within the Arabia. And both of these kingdoms are largely descendants from Ishmael. We do have a map on this. Our map shows Qadar. Hazor, the general consensus is that Hazor is to the east and to the south of where Qadar is. So we're talking about the whole plain of the Arabah here, all the way out to along the Euphrates River in the Persian Gulf. This is a large area that's being prophesied to here. And
0: all joking aside, there are nomadic peoples, tent-dwelling peoples, that uh, utilize camels because they do very well in the desert. So... It's not any more awkward than if we're describing Texans who tend to drive trucks as opposed to like those poor people in Maine or Vermont or wherever <laughs> and uh, Subarus that yeah. they drive.
5: Yeah. So, yes,
4: camels were prolific in their society, but we are going to resist, I think, any more camel jokes. Especially some of the ones that we were speaking about during our time of study. It was rather (laughs) prolific. From the time of Gideon, though, the kings of the east were camel riding, moon worshiping, conquerors rushing in to destroy Israel. The prophecy is about the table being turned upon them. They are now the ones in terror of sudden attack. Alright, so when you are thinking about camels in the Bible, think about this for a second. (laughs) It's important to note that they are the largest of the unclean animals within the biblical society. On that note, if you realize camels are the largest unclean animal in the area, let's read Matthew 19, and Peyton's going to help us out
5: with a story. All right, Matthew 19, verse 21. Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. He's saying, get rid of the things you might otherwise rely on. Then you come follow me. Verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sad. <laughs> because he had great wealth. The rich man was not willing to forfeit his own self-sufficiency. Mm. Oh. Mm. Then Jesus oh, yeah. said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, when his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. They caught him by surprise, I guess. Who then can be saved? Wow. Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. Think he's getting after their self-sufficiency. Yeah. yeah. But with God, all things are possible. That's right. Peter answered them, "Him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us?" The disciples of Jesus forfeited every form of self-sufficiency that they might have otherwise relied on. I ask you tonight? Have you done that? Yes. Woo. Verse twenty-eight. Jesus said to them. I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, can't wait for that day, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, And many who are last will be first. While the camel is the largest of unclean animals in the biblical world, the largest unclean animal in our world is usually self-sufficiency and self-reliance. So keep that in mind as we move forward. Also, we just want to make a note from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia that it is through Qadar, which is the region we're talking about, that Muslim genealogists trace the descendants of Muhammad from Ishmael. That's probably why
4: Muhammad can be in a cave by himself somewhere, being choked out by a demon, demon, receive a revelation by himself, and go and spread it to the rest of the world. Don't you think there is some sort of lesson for us about self-sufficiency then? Why don't we get verse 30? Flee
3: quickly away. Stay in deep caves. The Lord, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has plotted against you. He has devised a plan
6: against you. Now, as we said, we're going to try to speak <laughs> to the text, and I make no promises. But you might recall that Revelation 6, verse 15 through 17, has some strangely familiar words in it. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves. And among the rocks of the mountains. Oh. they what call all those people have been common <laughs> They called to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the land. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Saints, we're speaking about an actual event where Babylon crushed them. But it's also foreshadowing things that would later come to pass or will later come to pass. But in both cases, all who rely on their own strength will find themselves hiding from the face of God on that day. It's a reality then and a reality now, even in this room. Let's get verse 31 and 32. Arise and attack
3: a nation at ease which lives in confidence, declares the Lord. A nation that has neither gates nor bars live alone their camels will become plundered and the Lord their large herds will be booty. you know it I will scatter to the winds those who are in distant places and will bring disaster on them from every side declares the Lord I know
0: you're looking at the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and you hear us talking about Islam which is my favorite thing to pick on um And so your mind immediately, no matter how many times we say it, drifts to some other people in some other place. Do you really believe that this nation doesn't live at ease and in confidence? I mean, doesn't the Del Rio River situation right now tell us that we have no gates and bars? We don't need them. (laughs)
4: Yeah.
0: It's time to make personal application with this verse. Are you ready for it? Yes. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the nation. Is this really different than a Christian who is self-reliant and self-confident? For so many, this is our largest unclean animal. We can spend all of our time straining out the tiny gnats, which are the smallest unclean animal in Israel, and completely miss the camel if our souls are not properly warmed. The godliest men that I know, we are all struggling to get rid of this camel-sized problem in our lives. Amen. Amen. It's the subject of all of our pastors and elders' meetings. But I'm sure you're not having any problem with it. <laughs> Biblically speaking, we could use some bars and some gates against this kind of behavior. Amen. Yeah. That's called a team. Oh, come on. Yeah. That's
4: a good word.
0: That's called Shmiha. That's called having a brother that can look into your life and speak into your life like Jeremiah and Baruch did with each other. We need bars and gates against this kind of behavior, or one more camel joke okay. we simply become camel booty.
3: Oh, <laughs> Let's pick up in 33. Azor <laughs> will become a haunt of Jacob, a desolate place river. No one will live there, no man.
2: All right, so there's a couple passages that's going to help us with this concept. Becoming a haunt of jackals, a desolate place. We hear that same wording in Revelation 18, 2 through 4. It says, with a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit. A haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people.
7: Come
1: out!
2: So that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. In this passage, Mystery Babylon became a haunt of jackals because she persisted in her own Direction throughout history in opposition to the only right way. This was the only thing that was left because of this. In Jeremiah 51, verse 37 through 40, we see another reference to this.
4: We're going to see one of the foundational scriptures for what we just read in Revelation 18 in Jeremiah 51, 37. Babylon will be a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, an object of horror and scorn. A place where no one lives. Her people all roar like young lions. They growl like young lion cubs. But while they are aroused, I will set out a feast for them and make them drunk so that they shout with laughter. Then sleep forever and not awake, Wow! Wow. declares the Lord. I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams and goats. This is in the book of Jeremiah, and Babylon is the personification of maddening behavior based on persistent self-direction. Worse yet, she leads the way for others to imitate this kind of sinful behavior. Her ultimate end is in the book of Revelation. However, we are speaking of Hazor, and Hazor's behavior is what is being addressed. It is important to note that Adonai corrected this in his nation before ever addressing either
5: Hazor or Babylon. And we see that in Jeremiah 9, 11. Listen to how he addresses his nation. This is Jeremiah 9, verses 11 through 14. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt for jackals. And I will lay waste to the towns of Judah so no one can live there. What man is wise enough to understand this? Who has been instructed by the Lord and can explain it? Why has the land been ruined and laid waste like a desert that no one can cross? The Lord said, It is because they have forsaken my law, which I have set before them. He didn't hide it from them. He set it before them. And they have not obeyed me or followed my law. Instead, they have followed the the stubbornness of their hearts. They have followed the bales. As their fathers taught them, the Lord does not take lightly following the stubbornness of your heart, operating in self-direction and self-reliance. I think we should take up a Proverbs 3 attitude, that we trust in the Lord with all our heart, not leaning on our own understanding, our own self-sufficiency, but in all our ways, acknowledging Him. And what does He do? He makes our paths straight. Straight. Hey, where
0: does judgment begin?
3: Uh-huh. God, God,
0: God corrected his nation on this very subject before he addresses Hazor or before he addresses Babylon or in the book of Revelation, mystery
6: Babylon. What do you think we ought to do before we're preaching Come to others? On. Yeah. I just read from Jeremiah 9. I'm about to pick up in Jeremiah 10, 22 through 23. On that note. Deuteronomy 28 spoke about the blessings and curses that would result from whether or not we kept the law, or specifically Israel as the model for all of the rest. Verse 47 happens to say that all of this is the result of whether or not we joyfully obey the Lord. Here the continued warning in the very next chapter from where Peyton was reading. Listen, the report is coming, a great commotion from the land of the north. It will make the towns of Judah desolate, a haunt for jackals, which is a Hebrew synonym for evil spirits and the result of sin. You should be catching that as we go through these passages. Which is why the book of Revelation simply says demon Demon spirits. (coughs) I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. Saints, we're going to read that together one more time.
1: I I know, know, O Lord, Lord, that a man's man's life is is not his his own.
6: own. Praise God for men who understand this during dark days. It is not for man to direct his steps. Guys, when we recognize this like Jeremiah, we have the hope of Jeremiah. Can I tell you a secret? If a haunt for
0: jackals is actually a euphemism for a home of demon spirits, then you're not actually self-directing your life. You just think that you are. Right. When you think you are being self-directed, you're actually being directed by demonic things. That's the overwhelming emphasis of these passages, but Ezekiel, Ezekiel kind of drives it home. Ezekiel 13.3. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets, O Israel, are like jackals among ruins, demon spirits. You have not gone up to the breaks in the wall to repair it for the house of Israel so that it will stand firm on the day, on the battle, on the day of the Lord. Listen, preaching that is beautiful and sweet and sugary that does not repair the breach in the wall, it's not just misguided. It's not just self-directed. It's actually demonically inspired. Wow, wow. The visions of your prophets were false and misleading. They did not ward off captivity, the book of Lamentation says. Okay? Think through that for a minute. Believing the right things has nothing to do with this. Not living them, not being uh, moved by God to address the breach in the wall is not just being self-directed. It's being demonically influenced and encouraging others to do. Do you know that that is what Babylon the Great is accused of in the book of Revelation? Wow. Your prophets, O Israel, are like jackals among ruins. You have not gone up to the breaks in the wall to repair it for the house of Israel (laughs) so that it will stand firm in the day of the battle of the Lord. Their visions are false and their divinations a lie. They say the Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them, yet they expect their words to be fulfilled. Have you not seen false visions and uttered lying divinations when you say the Lord declares though I have not spoken? Hey, are you ready to make some personal application? (laughs) He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to us Gentiles. Mm. Is this really any different than a Christian who is self directed and persists in going his own way? We must each be very, very careful to correct this problem within us. The overwhelming testimony of the book of Revelation is come out of her, my people, so that you do not share in her sin. Come on. Every little bit of self direction in our lives. Is actually commingling with demonic things. No matter how noble you think your intentions are. And God says we have to come away from it or we share in mystery Babylon's sin. Hey, what's verse 34 said?
3: This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning Elam. Early in the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. See... I will break the boat of Elam, the mainstay of their might.
2: All right, so we've moved to Elam, the nation. And the mainstay of their might was weapons and resources. Hmm. That's what God was going to break. That's so hard, Texans.
0: Yeah. Are
2: you ready to make personal application Ooh, to that? Right out the
0: gate. Wow. Right out. Yeah, we're just going to get this one out oh. there.
8: Yeah.
2: He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the nations. Is this really different than a Christian who is scared to be weak or in powerless positions? Is this any different than a Christian who tries to hide his strengths or hide his weaknesses with his strengths? Look, when we cling to being in positions of strength, then we invite heaven to break us. When we are only transparent in the things we're strong in and not the things we are weak in then we are inviting heaven to come and tear us down completely because that is not being transparent and truthful.
0: You you want the part of this that that really bites? Elam is essentially uh, Western Iran. And I would love to believe that this is their problem. Except when I'm reading it, I recognize that it's very much our problem.
6: Yes. How
0: many of you have no problem at all helping a brother uh, that is limping in the parking lot? How many of you really want to be the brother limping in the parking lot needing your brother's help?
2: That's what Elam is being addressed for. (laughs)
1: All
2: right, so we're going to show you a map for your reference so you can see Elam. All right.
4: So all the way to the right of our screen here, (coughs) along the Euphrates River, just north of the Persian Gulf, We have the nation that we are addressing in this next section. That's Elam over there. And I believe that Eric has a few things to talk to us about (laughs) Elam. Amen. So Elam shows up early
0: in the Bible. Uh, We don't have time to go through it with 14 minutes left. I want to just help you with your notes. When Abraham takes up a battle, four kings against five, Elam is in that that group. Um, Elam is important in the biblical scene because Babylon comes on the scene in power. The next contingent that displaces Babylon is the Medo-Persian group, and that includes Elam, and they're later displaced by the Greeks. So Elam is is a major world player. Their doom is prophesied in Jeremiah 25-25. It's prophesied here in the 49th chapter uh, of Jeremiah. It's also prophesied in Ezekiel 32. Ultimately, the descendants from this region, Elam, resettle in Samaria after the Assyrians uh, have conquered it. That's, that's an interesting thing. Ezra points that out in Ezra the fourth chapter. Another time Elam shows up in the scripture is its capital, Susa, is it's where the book of Esther takes place. Okay? Elamites, though. Are also mentioned, I love this one, as being at Pentecost. Oh, wow. wow. Okay? Yeah. Il- Elam is not a, a lost cause. No. No. The largest, fastest growing church in the world, yeah. and maybe the most Israel focused church in the world, is right now in Elam. In okay? In or better said, Western Iran. If, uh, if you really want to dig into something special that we don't have time for, one of the basis of all real serious, serious understanding of spiritual geography comes from Daniel 10. Try to figure out who all the Prince of Persia is in control of, and I'll tell you that for sure it includes Elam. Yeah. And that archon stood against angelic powers that for 21 days prevented Daniel from receiving a message. And yet, people get saved from Elam, show up at Pentecost and go back to Elam with the power of the Ooh. Almighty God Ooh. to liberate the people and 2,000 years later
4: it's still happening right now. Come on. Was that not incredible, insightful information about Elam? Yeah. Yes. Woo. We're going to read verse 36 and keep going. I will bring against the four winds, from the four quarters of the
3: heavens. I will scatter them to the four winds and there they will not be a nation where Elam's exile do not go.
4: Okay, so they're being brought to the four winds, to the four quarters of the heavens. to the four, he, They're going to be scattered to the four winds. This is incredible dispersion type language. It has happened historically in the past, but it's going to happen again as well. Okay, so ma- let me ask you a couple questions because you might not believe me. Who in here has been to Washington, D.C.? Okay, anybody in here have been in a cab in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> then you have met people from Alam in the
6: cab being dispersed to the four whoa, 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 of the nation. Whoa, whoa, whoa. All right, all right. I got a Texas one. Do I need you? had a tow truck driver pick you up as of life. Yeah. Then yes, you've probably met an Elamite or a Jordanian. You see, this dispersion
4: is prevalent throughout the entire world and it's still happening today. When you see four winds, when you see four corners in the Bible, you guys get the opportunity to track down that kind of imagery in your own time. But we want to say that it does speak to heaven's full might coming against what you might be relying on. Yeah. The four winds, the four corners of heaven coming to destroy what you're relying on. Think Zechariah
0: 6 and the four beasts that go out and are straining, even though God is empowering. It's the full might of heaven yeah. coming against whatever you have relied on other than the God of Israel. On. Verse
3: 37 and 38. I will shatter them out toward their foes for those who seek their lives. I will bring disaster upon them. Even my fierce anger, declares the Lord. I will pursue <laughs> them with the sword, but until I have made an end of them, I
5: will set my throne in Elam and destroy oh. her king and officials, declares the Lord. Wow. So Elam is definitely going to be judged and go under this great tribulation. Yeah. He's breaking the spiritual powers and establishing supremacy. Did you hear that he would set up his throne? and destroy her kings and officials. This is in the land that today they shout Allahu Akbar. If you ever study that, that's just not a suicide chant that they let out. They're saying that our God is greater than the God of Israel. That's what they believe, but God will come and prove them wrong. And he will judge those archons.
0: If any of you are old enough to remember when the Shah of Iran was overthrown by a, a more radical revolutionary group, if you thought that that ...was dramatic, wait till this Islamic revolutionary group there presently is overthrown by the throne of God himself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
5: and it's happening one life at a time in Iran right now. Come on, yeah. You know, Pastor Eric, I would like to speculate that these judgments are designed to break the connection between them and the archons... Yeah. ...to destroy the sinful self-reliance Amen. of the nation... And allow a remnant to turn towards salvation. Yeah.
6: Margo, never have faith in yourself. That's right. <laughs> On the note of a remnant that will be saved, Brother Linton, help us out with verse 39. Yet I will restore the fortunes of your life in days to come, declares the Lord. Guys, does that not feel like overwhelming mercy after hearing what you've heard? <laughs> yeah. I mean, disperse to the four winds of heaven, but there is a day that he will have mercy that he will restore. Guys, in closing, we want to remind you, we've been speaking to you as Gentile believers, inclining you, asking you to tilt your ear into what the Spirit is saying to the Gentile nations. More than ever, that could not be more important for us in the days that we live in. That's right. Guys, we told you a parable that I want to repeat before we go over some of the highlights together. There was a great king, not an average king, Not a mediocre king, a great king with his firstborn son. Who's that firstborn son? Jesus Jesus and
5: and Israel. Israel.
6: And many servants. Who's that? Us. (laughs) Uh, We'll see. Maybe by the end of Jeremiah, (laughs) we'll talk about this.
0: We'll we'll give you a clue. You're not Israel.
6: (laughs) (laughs) The king became displeased that his firstborn son, And his servants were disobedient. So the king takes one of the servants, Babylon, and commands the servant to spank his firstborn son. After the son is corrected, the great king then proceeds to discipline all of his servants in a specific order and saves the ones who who spanked his firstborn for last. Guys, you're hearing the accounting of all of the other servants or other sons that were not the firstborn getting their spanking that also leads to a remnant turning and calling on Messiah. Amen. He's planned to reclaim this whole earth from the very beginning okay. and he will not stop until what Psalm 82 verse 8 says, until he arises and inherits the nations. Amen. As in a brief recap, we want to talk through some of these sons and the things you should be taking away. The Ammonites. We talked to you about personal application, taking your ear and listening to what God was saying to the Gentiles. We compared this to a Christian that has been shown extraordinary mercy by God, but was still not pure. That he had seen giants fall in his day due to God's kindness, but he had turned and was attacking those around him who were living faithful lives. I said. I love each one of you, and I'm looking at some of you single men. If you can't remember a two-week period where you have not had a wet dream, you are an Ammonite. We need to commit to war on these things, not having an experience, seeing giants fall, and then settling right back into the same kind of mediocre stuff that the Ammonites did. You will be judged for it in the house of God. We're going to take a sober and encouraging warning that his desire is to bring about righteous nations that will serve alongside the one firstborn son, and he will take it from this number.
0: If you find yourself in an Ammonite-like cycle, resist the urge to turn your hostility towards your brothers that are not in an Ammonite-like cycle. (laughs) Instead, turn every bit of that rage on the sin itself. Because you can't change God's standard. You can only ask God to change you so that you can meet that standard. Reflecting on Edom, we looked at Edom like a Christian who does not truly embrace his calling because he's envious of something that someone else is called to do. And we also looked at Edom as men who are holding titles that God did not Give them. The most damaging thing about looking at Edom, looking at Esau, is that he was his own God. Church, we need to be warned. You don't choose your calling, you don't choose your own activities. No one is better than another. There are just men who believe they have received from heaven and are satisfied, (laughs) and men who are not. and they spend the rest of their lives trying to aim at something that God didn't want to give them. It's an unhappy life. It makes everybody else unhappy who is around you. Be content with where your boundary lines have fallen and do it to the very best of your ability and you will be able to avoid the Esau-like
8: spirit.
2: We then looked at Damascus and we compared this to a Christian who had been ordained to lead his family to minister in his workplace, and to be a light to his neighbor. We saw that this represents us who have been entrusted with authority from the God of Israel, but what we have done with that, that God has entrusted us with, well, it doesn't quite compare for the reason why he entrusted that with us. It's common for believers to feel shame when we're being confronted with the fixed stare of the prophet, but that's not nearly as important as actually amending the behavior And beginning to walk in what God has entrusted you with. Church, there is no time. If you've been ordained in a home to lead a home. If you've been ordained to minister in a workplace. Or to be the light to your neighbor. And that leaves none of us out. There is no time to waste. That is a God-ordained task that he has given you. That he expects a return on. And if you want more insight into that. Read the parable of the talents. What did he tell the servant that did nothing with what was entrusted to him? The wicked, lazy servant. He called him wicked. See, it's not what we believe that makes us righteous; it's what we do with what we've been entrusted with.
4: <coughs> Our next one was Kadar. Kadar personified the Christian in self-reliance, his own self-confidence, just like the camel. So many times, self-reliance, self-confidence in ourselves is the biggest unclean animal in our own lives.. <laughs> we can spend all of our time straining out gnats, the little things that we're good at, we're good at, right? The things that we think that we have mastery over and we want everybody else to see. And yet we don't want them to see the camels, the unclean portions of our life. That we attempt to hide. Guys, we need to have bars and gates. Rising and constructed in our life. That means brothers. That means teams. That means transparency. That means bars and gates that will help keep these things out. And you know, the damning part of all of that is that the biggest camels in your own life, you don't even see. You can't see the biggest unclean areas of your life. Without the bars and gates of your brother saying, hey, man, you got a camel in your eye, dude. And if you don't get that out of here, then something bad, something worse is going to happen to you. We need to have these bars and gates enacted in our lives now yeah. so that we can get these these areas of impurity out of our lives. That's
5: a good word. Next, we talked about Zor and we likened it to a Christian who is self-directed and persistent in going his own way. Listen, the reason you go your own way is because it's easier than what the Lord asks you to do. Yeah. yeah. But that does not annul the things that he made you for. You just have to face it and prove faithful with those talents that he's put in your hand. Yeah. We have a couple minutes. I just want to share something my pastor shared with me that I share every chance I get. Always be the man who is willing to try and fail. Then fail by not trying. Self-directed, you will always do what you know you're capable of. But when you get in a team and you're directed by the community of believers, you'll accomplish everything that God can ask you. Amen. Amen. And you'll have a return for the things that he invested in you. Amen.
6: Good work, Our final nation was Elam, whose mainstay was the bow and their resources, their weaponry, and their ability to provide for themselves. You know, it's interesting how the Holy Spirit arranged the order of the nations. Mm -hmm. Because an inability to be weak will prevent you (laughs) from accomplishing anything that we've been preaching about. Wow. Come on. I tell you my own personal life that I shared on many of the things that you heard. And God has been working vulnerable, weak situations into me ever since. It's going to take directed force. Like a choice every single morning that I will operate under the leading of the Holy Spirit with the men that are around me. You're going to have every reason in the world not to be in a weak position with the men on the other side of the room, not to be in a weak position at work, but this is what God is calling us to. He is breaking the bow of our own dependency our own self-sufficiency so that we can turn to real dependency on Christ and actually accomplish the things we've been preaching about. Not merely aspire to them. We will be what we are preaching. It is going to happen in every man in this room, but the moment that we turn and realize weakness is the only way to get there, and you Mm -hmm. must pray and begin to expect it. Mm -hmm. Prepare your households for it.
0: We're going to turn this meeting over to the pastors, and as they're making their way up here, I wanted to say how proud I am of this church. It's been an extraordinary journey to go from drug addicts and, uh, well, not not the kind that everybody dreams about building a church around, (laughs) to where we're standing today. And the fact that you not only keep coming back for more and more of this, But that the Lord loves us enough to have prepared us for this kind of material for months in advance. I mean, he has been walking us through this. He is helping us. And he's doing it all over the one association. It really does make me begin to have real practical faith. That we can take all of those yellow areas up there on the map. And uh, I want to encourage you to rise in your faith. I want to encourage you to take bold, new, daring steps of transparency. I I really don't want to enter into a mournful time where you spend a bunch of time crying about having found Esau in your life. We knew it was there before we showed up. It's, It's there in our life, too. I really would like to rise up in tremendous faith that our Father is teaching us. And that we can, will, must, are going to win.
1: Amen. 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 Amen.
8: Amen. Such a good word, right? Yes. yes. So many parts of it I love. The one thing that keeps repeating in my mind is the call to let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And as we go through each one of these nations, hearing what is there that needs to be transformed. Church, you are guys and ladies that are strong. What we are encouraging you to do is the same thing the Lord's encouraging us to do. And that's to die to our own strength and depend on the Lord through each other. Walking in a transparency that immediately kills, annihilates, self-reliance and self dependency Already this week, Your pastors have engaged with you because you've initiated the conversation and transparency. And as a result of that initiation of transparency, you are making better decisions. Allowing everyone to contribute and not living with years of a singular mistake. Instead, having the opportunity to clearly know and hear from God. It's affirming. And comforting whenever you can put a decision before the body of Christ, and everyone tests and approves it. Amen. You can stand on that Amen. with joy. There's a couple of passages that come to mind as it relates to let him who has an ear hear. This is Luke 8:18. 8, Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Now just because you hear these words and it stirs and moves you now, you ought to be thinking, what does the Lord actually want me to do that changes my actions and behavior? The verse continues, whoever has will be given more. Amen. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have, will be taken from them. You've been entrusted with a plethora of truths from the word just tonight. Not counting all the time we spend together. Let's put them into practice. Yes. Yeah. Let's give our king the interest that he deserves, that he's invested in our lives. Yeah. Lastly, Romans eleven twenty two. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell. Why did they fall? Because of their own sinful self-reliance. But it goes on. But kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Mm
1: -hmm.
8: Otherwise, you'll be cut off. But the hope there is that you have the opportunity to continue in his kindness, continue in his covenant loyalty that he's given to you. So there's hope in this. Thank you, Jesus, that you're bringing to the surface the areas that still need to change. I'm not perfect yet. But I am aiming in that direction.
7: For our final verse of the evening, I want to recall to you where we one of the first verses that we covered tonight. It's in Daniel chapter 4, 34. I'm going to catch starting in the last sentence there on the screen and then move on into verse 35. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and with the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is a Gentile king who got the revelation of the importance of our God. How much more will the men and women in this room understand our king as he is working inside of us to rid us of the self-reliance, of the, of the strength of our own arm and actually move us towards what he's been already revealing to us. Stand to your feet now so that we can pray together and joyfully and victoriously trust that what God has already started us, whether it's the purity that we need, whether it's the getting rid of self-reliance or self-confidence or being our own God or relying in our own strength and not wanting to be in weak positions. Whatever it is that God is working on you, he's showing it to you so that you can get this kind of revelation. So that you can understand our God does as he pleases and it is pleasing to him to strengthen you in this room. Mighty God, we love you. God, we honor you. Move in the hearts of your people tonight, mighty one. Lord, that we will entrust ourselves to you not just hear words, but Lord, we will amend our behavior and we'll do it now. Raising our eyes to the heavens, Lord, to be empowered by your spirit, to be joyful as those around us are being blessed. Lord, never, never being jealous of someone else's call. Lord, that we can entrust ourselves to you and that what you have spoken to the nations, Lord, we will have ears to hear We will have hearts to respond, and we will entrust that your power will help and achieve your purpose, not only in our lives, but in this church and in the nations of the world. Lord, we love you and honor you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen.